Hello, this is Monica Reeds. I'm Georgina Godwin. Today's guest is an architect turned journalist who started working in the field after the US invaded his home country of Iraq in 2003. He was a translator for The Guardian and, as a foreign correspondent, has reported across Iraq, Syria, Libya, Yemen and Afghanistan for the past 20 years. His work has earned him an array of awards, including the Martha Gellhorn Prize for Journalism, the James Cameron Memorial Trust Award, the British Press Awards Foreign Reporter of the Year, the Orwell Prize for Journalism, as well as two Emmys. His book, A Stranger in Your Own City, Travels in the Middle East's Long War, published on the 20th anniversary of Iraq's invasion, is a poignant and reflective masterpiece about a country's rich yet contentious history and the resilience of its people. Kate Abdul-Ahad, welcome to Monocle Reads. Thank you so much, Georgina. And I'd really just like you to say your name because I've been practicing it for a long time now. And it's really important that listeners know how you pronounce it because it's beautiful in your voice. Thank you. It's Kate Abdul-Ahad. Well, thank you so much for coming here. The city referred to in the title is Baghdad. Now, you were born there. Tell us about your early life. What do you remember So I have to confess that I lived a very boring life in Baghdad. I mean, boring in the context of witnessing three wars. So I was five when the first war started with Iran. I was 15 or 14 when the Americans started bombing Baghdad in 1991. And I was 28 when the Americans started bombing the city again in 2003. However, none of my family were tortured or imprisoned. None of my family were, you know, members of the regime. So it was a boring life. I, you know, went to school. I, it was my city, rarely left Baghdad, and I knew the city very, very well. I studied architecture. I loved architecture. But then when I started working as an architect, I realized I'm doing ugly work for people who could afford to build ugly houses during the sanctions years. So very frustrated. I felt imprisoned in my own city. I tried to leave the country, couldn't, because I didn't have you know, the right papers. I was a military deserter. So for many years, I tried to smuggle myself out of Iraq, and I failed, and I waited. I really want to go back to that time of deserting from the military. And in the book, you describe a couple of attempts of actually trying to leave the country. And I also want to know what it was that made you and so many others like you want to leave. What was life like under under the regime? So the worst thing in all the wars and the disasters I've witnessed, the worst period of my life was during the sanctions. Because that's when a middle-class society is crushed by UN-imposed sanctions, by American-imposed sh- sanctions. And that's when the salary of a teacher becomes $2, the salary of a policeman is a $1. And that's when the society crumbles in front of your eyes, when there is no hope, there is no future. That's when the majority of the Iraqis started leaving and fleeing, going to, you know, to Jordan, to Turkey, to the Gulf, trying to find work, trying to find jobs. I mean... The sanctions just brutalized the society. I mean, there were no medicine in hospitals. There were electricity rationing. And and that's when we tried to leave. And, I mean, you describe in the book people queuing for passports. You describe the passport office. And it's quite extraordinary the lengths that people have to go to. And then, of course, later, the huge corruption involved in that. 
But of course, so those who could afford, those who could get a passport would be queuing for hours outside the passport office. But of course, getting a passport didn't mean much during the sanctions or especially after 2003 and still doesn't mean much now. Having an Iraqi passport, you sit in the bottom of the passport list internationally. So so people tend to smuggle themselves because they have no other way of going to a country legally. I mean, many Iraqis would come, would love to travel legally to Europe to, to come here, to study, to work, then go back to their homes. But they, they are deprived of that option because... You know, you're not allowed to leave. You're not accepted as an Iraqi to enter other countries. Mm. You brush over being a military deserter in the book. You don't really talk about it at all. And I wondered if you were prepared just to tell us a little bit more about that. You know, Iraqis have been deserting the army for, for decades. Basically because we didn't believe in in military service to serve in Saddam's, you know, army to, you know, be foot soldiers in his adventures. But while in the 80s desertion was uh, punishable by death and very few could run away successfully because the state was very, very strong. What happened in my time, you know, again, the sanctions had weakened the state, hollowed it from inside. So someone like me with very little resources could be a deserter for five years, not because I was a brilliant but because the regime was very weak. The regime's hold on power was very weak. The, the same security apparatuses were, uh, were collecting bribes. So that's how I could survive. This is why I brush, because it wasn't an act of uh, daring courage to survive for five years. Mm. Then how did you get into journalism? Well, the Americans came to me. I didn't go to them. You know, it's like you wake up one day and you see the biggest military in the universe, in the world, is in your street. You see helicopters hovering over your neighborhood. And so I saw the Americans and it was a shock. It was, I don't know how to describe this shock. 20 years later, I'm still shocked by that scene. You see these soldiers with their helmets and and amphibious vehicles and guns in my street, in my neighborhood. So I followed them and they drove short distance, kind of parked their vehicles in front of the statue of Saddam, pulled down the statue and as they say, the rest is history. And you were there to witness that huge historical moment. It was. And the next day I walked into Saddam's palace. Why? I don't know. Probably I wanted to understand our history. I wanted to understand Saddam's mentality. I thought if I go to the palace, maybe I will understand what happened. And by the end of that day, I was hitching a ride and it was a British journalist, James Meek from The Guardian. And that's it. I ended up working as a, as a started as translator, news assistant, and then a journalist myself. Uh, taking your own pictures as well. I mean, when I was an architect, I kind of loved street photography and I would often walk around the streets of Baghdad taking pictures. So it's a very natural progression from taking pictures of building into taking pictures of burned buildings and car bombs and uh, yeah. bombs. And I should just point out there are some wonderful illustrations in the book which you also did yourself. Yes, I mean, that's the point where my previous architect life, you know, <laughs> emerges again. I think that this book is so important for a Western audience. I think that what you've done here is you you've shown us you've shown us Iraq you've shown us inside Baghdad from your point of view and we have been fed only the western narrative or largely the western narrative for so long and you take us into the city you introduce us to the people but you also introduce us into the way that it changed in that we were sold for instance this idea of a Sunni and a, and a Shia conflict 
But in your experience, that was never the case, or certainly not until it was manufactured. Look, I mean, Sunni and Shia identity had existed in Iraq and the rest of the region for the last 14, 1500 years. But in the last few decades, the state had basically ironed these identities out of, of, of life. Social class, tribal differences were far more important. And in the context of, you know, my family, our friends, you know, intermarriages between Sunnis and Shia, Kurds and Arabs were the most common thing. And in my school up until today, I don't know who was Sunni and who was a Shia because that was never an identity exhibited or used. And then within a few days from the occupation, from the war, we are told, you know what, you're not one nation. You are three different groups of people. You've been in this conflict forever. And this is the reality of the new Iraq. And that that conflict between these two realities, these two narratives, the narrative we were fed under Saddam, that Iraq was one state that had existed for 5,000 years, that Saddam is the latest manifestation of the greatness of the state that begot the Babylonian and the Assyrians, and the new narrative, which is, no, this is a fragmented society from Sunnis and Shia. And these, the conflict between these two narratives bred the civil war. And again, the sectarian political narrative, this ethnic sectarian identity politics that emerged came with the exiles group, with the exile political parties that came to Iraq on the back of the American tanks. They had grown up in exile. They had their own grievances. They had their own traumas. And they wanted to define the society on a simplistic binary level. The same, I mean, and of course, as the Americans, like any invading army, would always use one group of one part of the society against another. I mean, the British did that in India and so forth. So that sectarian identity, that sectarian conflict, should it have happened? And there were many ways to avoid that civil war that unfolded in Iraq after 2003. And it had a, a geographical consequence too in the city because suddenly areas just became places where you couldn't go and then actual physical barriers began appearing. I mean, of course, again, I'm, I'm someone who grew up in Baghdad for 28, 29 years. Suddenly I became a stranger in my own city. It's a reality. I couldn't travel around my city anymore without someone vouching for me, sometimes traveling with a couple of people, one with a Sunni connection with the insurgency, the other with the Shia connections with the militias. This is how the city started dividing. Neighborhoods closed on each other. Then the purification, then the expelling of the outsiders, the, the Sunnis from Shia neighborhoods, the Shia from Sunni neighborhoods, and then the barriers, as you say. And then suddenly that flat, ugly, dare I say, city is fragmented and with walls uh, separating different neighbourhoods. And also quite criminal, it would appear. A lot of this was not done through any kind of ideology or any genuine hatred of the other. It was simply money-making. Absolutely. I mean, it's very convenient to say I am killing so-and-so because I'm avenging whatever religious grievances of the past 1,500 years. But then civil wars in Iraq, like any other place, they have their own dynamic. You know, when gangs of men, and they're always men, go around kidnapping and extorting kind of, you know, ransoms, that becomes a business. And that business kind of fuels itself. Of course, ideology is a very convenient cover, is a, a, a religious, as if I have a religious uh, sanctions to do what I do. The reality is it's a criminal and, and many of those people, you know, are still there in Baghdad. Some of them are sitting in the parliament. You describe being there as a journalist and it being a little bit like being an ambulance driver waiting for something to happen and then the, I guess the whole hack pack goes off and, and reports on it. 
But it was must have been different for you because because you you were part of that city. I was part of that city, and that is the effect of the war. You, as a journalist, you become isolated from your own city because you have to live in a hotel protected by concrete walls, by guards. And, and then you start experiencing, again, experiencing my own city as if I was an outsider chasing car bombs, chasing violence, chasing, uh, you know, street battles. Mm. This book is extraordinary in the depth that it goes into. I mean, we look at the various wars that happened in Iraq. We also go into Syria. You take us really right up to the present day. You you talk about ISIS and the establishment of that and and your movements between all of these places, as you say, with, with different identity cards. And Was there fear? You, you say at one point that when you're with a commander, you don't remember what he says because you were shaking so much. Absolutely. Fear was there, you know, all the time. Fear more from kidnapping, from you know, potential beheading, uh, than fear from violence, from car bombs, from clashes, from falling mortars. I mean, personally, the thing I fear most is kidnapping. And that is, you know, that scene when I'm sitting with this ISIS commander somewhere in northern Syria and he's talking and, and I'm just thinking, is this door going to close on us and we'll be held here as hostages or are we going to be allowed to leave and continue our journey? Mm. And so, in fact, you were given tea. <laughs> I was given tea. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, quite extraordinary that, that you take us into all this. And then the other thing that you do is every story that you tell us, every situation you describe, you do it through somebody, through the eyes of somebody that was there. So we meet all these various characters. We meet, we meet a psychiatrist, for instance. And I thought that was fascinating because, of course, that's one of the side effects of wars that people often don't think about. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I can't imagine the trauma that the Iraqi society has been going through. I mean, the trauma of Iraq, the trauma of violence did not start in 2003. I mean, probably started somewhere in the 60s, 70s and 80s. And it accumulates. And this is when I, in the ruins of the city of Mosul, when I saw people, you know, good people, I mean, good soldiers, torturing and executing. And you realize the legacy of that torture has been building in inside their mentality, inside their psyche for decades. You know, the Iraqi state was torturing the prisoners. The Americans came and they continued the torture. The Shia militias continued the torture. So, I mean, sometimes I just try to fathom the level of trauma within society. And of course, trauma doesn't disappear. Mm. You know, the experience of violence doesn't just disappear after a, a decade. It transforms itself. It comes out in a different form. In a and different it's shape. intergenerational. Exactly. Yeah. But interesting you're talking about torture because you, you make the point that there is a heritage of torture in Iraq, but you say it was different in Mosul. It was almost as if people in Mosul were being tortured not to confess because they were beyond caring what they confessed to. It was just sport or brutality. It was the moment when ISIS ideology succeeded. That was the ultimate success of ISIS. That the violence they had they had imposed on this region re-manifested itself in the way their own captors, suspected captors, were were being tortured. I asked one Iraqi officer, like, why are you torturing this kid? So don't you want to extract information? Don't you want a confession or something? And he was telling me, I don't care about it anymore. It was just for revenge. And again, this is the legacy of violence. ISIS kind of inflicted so much violence on the region, so many massacres in Iraq, that when the time kind of came, it was... 
it was the same violence kind of uh, reciprocated. And of course, what what the Syrian war did was that it united two mortal enemies against a third. I mean, look, the conditions created by the Syrian civil war was, was the perfect condition in which ISIS could flourish and exist. I mean, what started as a peaceful uprising against Bashar, the violence that Bashar al-Assad kind of inflicted on his people, the arming of all these different factions by everyone from the British, the Americans, the Saudis, the Qataris, to every single nation came to fight in Syria. And that fragmentation of battalions of violence allowed ISIS to emerge, taking over uh, you know, the landscape in eastern uh, Syria and in western Iraq. And you write, in any totalitarian society, some collaborate, a few resist, and the majority bend their heads and abide by the new rules. And that is, again, I think a western narrative is everybody there was you know, gung-ho to fight. And of course, that wasn't at all the case. It wasn't, because you know, when I was writing about life in, in Mosul under ISIS, it just struck me the similarity with the novels of the German writer Hans Fallader when he writes about life in Berlin in the 30s and 40s, how very decent people could stand and watch their neighbours uh, being, you know, taken to uh, concentration camps and whatnot. And that similarity, that the majority of people would decide to bend their head and stay inside their homes while their neighbors are being taken out and tortured and killed. That is something very common, unfortunately very common in our history. And, and, and like in Mosul, very few decided to resist in their own ways. Talking about telling these stories through the eyes of, of people on the ground, the story of Hassan the doctor and the fall of Mosul, that, that was fascinating. Yeah, Hassan is an old uh, friend of mine, school friend of mine, and the way the way history has evolved through his eyes and through his own experience was was fascinating. But also another doctor who I've met after the liberation of Mosul was a doctor who stayed in Mosul and decided to resist ISIS in her own way by building a private clinic in her own house and and treating the people. So again, these are the absolute different experiences of different people in different conditions in Iraq. Mm, mm. And the child soldiers, you, you talk about some of the children, the, I mean, young teenagers, who seem to be absolutely burning with this hatred and with this desire to do violence. And I wonder where that comes from. From the same legacy of violence that we've been talking about. I mean, those kids who are burning with anger probably have seen their village being bombed, have seen their parents being killed. I mean, the perfect sponge for violence are children. And this is why they recruit them as children, because they're easily uh, manipulated, affected. They, they don't feel fear. So the worst, the scariest fighters I've seen in my life are children. Mm. The resilience of the Iraqi people is extraordinary. At one point, you describe a car bomb going off of the markets, that some explosion in a market, the blood's washed down. People go back there the next day. Absolutely. I mean, look, I go to this kind of tiny little cafe. It's not even a cafe. It's like a couple of benches under a tree. And that cafe had been bombed by suicide bombers three times. And every time I go there and I, there is an explosion, I say, that's it. There will be no more explosion. Now I can go back to that cafe and get bombed again. 
you know, we talk about violence, we talk about war, we talk about these are the things that we talk about as journalists. But in reality, the majority of the Iraqis went on with their lives. Children went to schools, women did their shopping, fathers went. I mean, it, life had to continue in Baghdad. We saw the violence, but they saw it as part of their kind of daily fabric. Mm, mm. You also witnessed American atrocities particularly you describe an IUD goes off, I think, and and then Americans retaliate, but they're gunning down civilians in the street. And that's one incident in which I witnessed kind of helicopters strafing kind of civilians watching a burned armoured vehicle. But in in many other cases, you know, there have been violence. We've been told about, sometimes we believed it, sometimes we didn't believe it because we thought, how could the Americans do this? How could the Americans just kill civilians? Until things like WikiLeaks and we see the video of killing a Reuters cameraman. You know, the ultimate thing in this book is there is no accountability. Mm. No accountability to the people who ordered the war, the people who executed the war, the the Iraqis who killed other Iraqis. 20 years on, we don't have any accountability. How could it have turned out differently? I don't believe you can conduct an illegal occupation of a country after decades of sanctions, wars, and you turn it differently. I don't think there is any scenario in which this war could have not ended in the way it ended. However, there could have been ways to mitigate the the civil war that, that happened in Iraq. There was a way, you know, I call it two civil wars. So the first civil war ended in 2008, 2009, before the emergence of ISIS in 2011-12. And there was a period when the second civil war could have been avoided. The first civil war could have been avoided. But again, short-sightedness, greed, sectarian politics, all these played a role in continuing this conflict. Where is Iraq now? Well, look, in Baghdad, people are going to restaurants, people are going in of their houses, traveling, coming back, working. Uh, Iraq is a very rich country, $120 billion a year of oil money. And yet the poverty, the social injustice, the places in Baghdad and the rest of Iraq, on par with some of the worst, poorest countries in the world. That dichotomy, that split between the rich and the poor is the potential of the next round of conflict in Iraq. Iraq is facing major challenges, least of which is terrorism or ISIS and whatnot, environmental collapse, rivers drying, expanding population, and again, a clique of kleptocratic politicians, businessmen, militia commanders controlling the state versus the rest of the population. That is the next conflict. I mean, you you talk about, you write about the Arab Spring and you talk about the sort of Iraqi attempts at the same thing, which ultimately didn't work. Do you think something like that could happen? So Tishreen uprising, the Tishreen demonstrations in in October 2019, that was the first moment when when Iraqis kind of washed away this filth of sectarianism, when groups of young men, poor and rich, girls and boys, all went into the street demonstrating against the ruling politicians, and yet also against both Iran and the United States. The rallying cry was, Nrid Watan, we want a homeland. Of course, as all uprisings, popular uprisings, it failed. But it was a beginning. It was a beginning in showing Iraqis that there is a non-sectarian path that could lead to something better. So I think history needs some more time, another 20 years. But I think the beginning happened in 2019. And for Syria? Oh, Syria is much more complicated. It's because, again, it's multiple civil wars. It's um, 
I read a piece in the recently in which the writer describes it as a circus, you know, in which the Americans, the Russians, the Turks, the Kurds, everyone is, is still fighting this, this war. And again, each country has its own dynamic. So I think um, in Iraq, there is a way forward, probably easier than in Syria. We were talking about the psychiatrist and how this trauma, you know, doesn't just wash away. And from all you've seen, from everything you've done, from all the danger that you've lived in, I wonder about your own mental health. That's a very good question. Uh, I have two cats and they keep me sane. And <laughs> Look, I draw. I think drawing for me is a very good way of uh, winding down and uh, and. I mean, again, trauma, like what you see doesn't go away, but you find a way to deal with it in one way or another. And do you still live in Baghdad? I live not in Baghdad. I kind of, I'm based in Istanbul at the moment, which is a very beautiful city, but I go back and forth a lot. And did you ever manage to get a different passport? I'm still stuck with my beautiful Iraqi passport. (laughs) (laughs) I can't recommend this book highly enough. It should be required reading for every single politician and for anybody that wants to understand what's been going on in the Middle East. This is absolutely required reading. It's called A Stranger in Your Own City, Travels in the Middle East's Long War. It's published by Hutchinson Heinemann and it is by the wonderful, wonderful journalist and writer, former architect, photographer and illustrator, Khaith Abdul. Ahad. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Georgina. You've been listening to Monocle Reads, thanks to the production team of Nora Hull and Andre Nikolai Paminchuin. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>